This is Dr. Bartu with Pill Talk Podcast coming at you with our first episode of 2022. I have a special guest today, Dr. Camille Cohen. She has a doctorate in optometry. She's practicing both, uh, she's practicing private hospital and retail settings. She has a 2018 NOA Service Award. She was the 2020 Most Influential Woman in Optical by Vision Monday. And also, she earned a Dr. Melvin Ship Young Optometrist Award of the Year in 2021 at the NOA Convention. So, no further introduction. Dr. Cohen, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. Man, you achieved so much and you're doing so much. Um, I'm just happy to have you on the podcast, to have you uh, uh, tell your story to inspire the next optometrist out here. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. So let's start from the beginning. What sparked your interest to become an optometrist? Well, I can't see. Um, I don't <laughs> see well. <laughs> never could see well and I was always at the eye doctor and I just thought this could be fun he was a lot of fun to talk to he always remembered my name he remembered my brother's names he knew you know it was just always a fun conversation and then you come out and you can see better so it seemed like a great option I think that the fallback was always teaching because my parents were teachers my aunts uncles grand aunts uncles all my parents friends just teachers so I lived in a classroom and assumed well, if not optometry, then teaching, right? Um, but I think with my parents, they always kind of pushed me to think outside of teaching. And in seventh grade, I had a teacher that created a project where we had to pick a profession. And once you pick the profession, you needed to pick the city you wanted to live in. You needed to create a budget and kind of plan out your life, right? And I decided I was going to leave Florida because hometown for me is Miami, Florida. I said, I'm not going to live in Florida. I'm going to live in the Northeast. I picked optometry, researched it, looked into it, realized that you could have flexible hours. The pay was better than teaching. You could still get to talk to people. Um, you know, just so many opportunities for growth in the profession. And I felt like, OK, worst case scenario, I'll just go back to teaching or I'll also teach because you can be in this profession, as you well know, as a pharmacist and still give back in academia. So it just seemed like the perfect fit for me. Nice, nice, nice. Man, um, similar story. I kind of knew what I wanted to do at a young age too, but your seventh grade teacher, he really gave y'all like the blueprint for how you want to live your life. And you actually, do you, say, you checked everything off? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Nice. Um, so that was always kind of the plan. I think the, if anything, I would say having that dream, it was really just nurturing it uh, mm. way because even though they meant well, there would be people who were even really close to me, whether it's family members or even friends sometimes who would say, well, you know, math and science, they're not your strongest subject. Why would you still want to do that? You're better at writing. You're better at art. Why not continue that? I thought you would just, you know, be a teacher, be a professor be a writer. I thought that was what you're going to do. And I felt like, well, I could still do that, but this is what I feel is my calling. This is what I feel I can do and still reach more people and still do those other things later. So one of the big things I would always say to someone who 
wants to pursue a dream is don't just assume like, okay, I'm not, those aren't my strongest subjects or um, I'm not an A plus student in, in that. So maybe I can't do that. Yes, you can. You just have to decide that that's what you want to do. So for me, after junior high, high school, I went back to my optometrist. I asked to shadow him. Um, I reached out to other optometrists in the area, asked to shadow them as well. When I got to college, I think that was kind of a wake up call because I mm. thought you could just major in optometry and then you were done. <laughs> <laughs> so when I went to the advisor and she handed me the book and the brochure, I was like, well, what's this? And she's like, oh, it's a doctoral program. You have four more years. I was like, four after this? So eight years? I was like, nah, I don't, mm, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, you can relate to that. Pharmacy school, you hear, you think, okay, I'm cool, I'm good. And it's like, oh no, it's four more years. Um, that was something that shocked me a bit when I got to undergrad and thinking, okay, well, undergrad is hard. How am I going to handle through four more years, right? Um, but now having been out of school almost 10 years, I can say that the time does go back by faster than you imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember those type of conversations with people. I think I had one the other day with a friend who's like, man, you really went to school for eight years? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, no matter what you're doing, the time is going to pass. You might as well do exactly. something that's going to, you know, elevate you, uh, pursue a goal or something. It was like, yeah, man, but I don't, the school wasn't for me. I'm like, I don't think school really for anybody. <laughs> but Exactly. That's <laughs> the end goal. You just got to keep going through it. Yeah. 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 And the thing is, for me, when I graduated from college, it was the recession and I didn't go straight into optometry school. I took the time off and I decided to go back and take additional classes to try to build up my application. That's when I did research at Bascom Palmer and ended up publishing like a research paper there and decided to work inside, albeit of Pearl Vision uh, franchise store, which came like full circle once uh, we bought this franchise office. Because I was in that company for a good while as a technician. So using that time and then hearing people say again, like, okay, you're taking this time off. You're not getting a master's. What are you doing? By the time you finish school, you're going to be so old. Well, I graduated. I walked across the stage. I was 29. It's not that deep. (laughs) Not at all. So that's another thing to consider because, you know, people say that all the time. Like, oh, you're going to be there so long or, you know, you're going to be old. I don't like school. Who loves school? I like to learn, but I don't love school. Right. So I agree with you. (laughs) So, man, you kind of gave us the rundown of how you got to get through this um, to achieve this goal education wise. So you did four years at undergrad. And then you had to do four years of optometry school. Yep. So uh, what's some of the, what did you major in a, you got your bachelor of science in health science and then you went to optometry school. So can you describe optometry school if somebody was looking to get in there? Like what are some of the things that they can look forward to or learn in the school? In optometry school, you spend a certain number of hours in lecture and then you go to clinic. And usually as a first year, you're shadowing the upperclassmen while they see patients. And you then go to the lab usually later that day or on another day and you practice on your classmates uh, for, your, for your practicals. You have your exams where basically your professors are monitoring you. 
And sometimes they record you and they watch you perform a lot of the procedures on your classmates. And then once you pass all of those uh, exams, then you can go into clinic and start seeing patients on your own. Uh, we started seeing patients as early as second year where you get to do certain things. Eventually you're doing the whole exam, but the whole time you're juggling being in clinic, learning new skills and doing lectures. That's your whole life. That's all you do for the four years. really. And then towards the end, then you take uh, there are three national boards you have to take. So two are written and then one is another major practical that you take in North Carolina. Nice, nice, nice. So I know in pharmacy school, like at the end of the fourth year, they was pushing residencies. So do optometry has residencies to keep educating you after the uh, four years? They do. They do have residency. They did start to kind of push it. I feel like when I first looked into it, they didn't make it a big deal whether you wanted to be uh, a resident or not. But definitely once going to school, I feel like everything is shifting more towards, you know, encouraging students to do a residency, to, you know, do higher education, whether it's a fellowship or anything else like that. For me, honestly, I was just ready to be done with everything. <laughs> Um, between finishing up rotations and studying for boards, I was tapped out. Was, I didn't want to do residency. And for me personally, I don't regret it because I went into so many practice settings, but the private practice I worked in, I saw so much uh, ocular disease that I kind of learned a lot that way. And I appreciate just making myself continue to learn and, you know, follow up on things and go to lectures and read and do what I need to do to make sure that I'm providing the best possible care for patients. All right. I'm glad you mentioned the different settings because I want to get into that real quick, just so that you can have a breakdown and let people know about what do you do in a different settings as an optometrist. So uh, you did private hospital and retail. So let's start with, um, private. So what's the difference of each? And uh, can you explain that a little bit, please? Sure. So with optometry, really people often confuse it with ophthalmology, right? So ophthalmologists typically are surgeons. They go to medical school, they specialize uh, in ophthalmology and they do uh, in invasive or, you know, extensive procedures on patients. Mm -hmm. So optometrists really are more like your primary care professionals, right? Primary, mm -hmm. primary eye care, I would say. And in private, really one of the big differences is that you can apply for medical panels. And by doing that, you can do more extensive uh, procedures with patients. So in private practice, I really did not, I mean, I did, I did prescribe glasses and contacts, but I didn't do as many contacts really. A majority of my patients, maybe 90% of them were glaucoma patients that I was working up. Uh, my diabetics, I was checking in regularly, hypertensive, low vision, meaning people who've lost a proportion of their vision. So monitoring their eye health and making sure to um, create certain lenses so that they are functional. Uh, you just do a lot more mm -hmm. with patients, more in-depth care. Whereas like in a hospital setting, most often you are either working alongside an ophthalmologist where you may still be doing a lot more glasses, but you could also do specialty care. 
So those are people with uh, certain eye diseases that they need custom lenses uh, where, you know, regular glasses or contacts won't correct them. So you have to design certain lenses for them so that they can see um, and still work and, you know, live their lives independently. Or maybe you're taking care of pre or post operative care. So you'll see, I know a lot of optometrists that in a hospital setting, they see patients before or after cataract surgery or LASIK or anything like that to kind of facilitate that um, that that ongoing care for the patient. Whereas then the last one you said was what, retail? Yes, retail. Retail is kind of what I'm doing now, um, but I'm changing it a little bit. So retail is usually focused on the sale of glasses and contacts, right? So there are a lot of settings where it could be that the optical where they sell the glasses is separated from the doctor's office. Maybe that's owned by the company and the doctor owns their practice, right? Which you can still operate as a private practice within the retail. For me, I own both. So I own the optical and I own my practice. This office, when I first worked there, because this was my first job out, out of school, that owner was very much all about trying to sell some glasses and trying to make money from that. That was his goal. <laughs> it was everything for him. And I'm, I'm all for that. That's fine. But my primary goal is always going to be eye care. So I basically did, we did reconstruction and built an additional room so that I can bring in even some of my uh, former patients bring in patients to do glaucoma workups and follow my diabetics and do full diabetic screenings and make sure that I'm expanding to do specialty lenses, like what I mentioned before, make sure that basically we're doing everything. That's what I'm trying to get on more medical panels with even within the retail setting that, okay, yeah, we sell these things. We sell glasses, we sell contacts. All right, that's cute. But we also are here to take care of your eyes and make sure that we're taking care of everyone. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. All right. So, when did you take over this um, retail setting? Uh, the business that you have now. Uh, we we bought this franchise in March of 2020. Okay. So we signed the paperwork on March 2nd, and we were shut down like two weeks later because of COVID. <laughs> Y'all back up and open and running good now. Yeah, we're up and running. We still limit, you know, we have the door locked to limit the number of people because it's not a huge office. We try to screen people as best as we can and limit how many people we're seeing throughout the day. But thankfully, we're open five days a week right now. So that's good. Nice, nice, nice. All right. Can you give us an example of you giving out, giving outstanding care to your patients? Like someone coming in with glaucoma or something that can barely see and what did you do to help that person and that made them better, made their vision better? Um, I think usually what happens is, and this isn't always a great thing because if someone comes in saying they're having a vision change, that's not a good sign because glaucoma isn't something that you notice. So if they're noticing it, it means that it's advanced. But I had, um, I had a former employee, he brought his dad in and his dad kept telling me, oh, you know, some some dirty water got in my right eye. So I'm not going to see great out of it. And I thought, mm, no, that, is, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> um, but I was like, all right, sure. <laughs> 
And then what, what kind of dirty water? I was like, acid? But he's like, no, just dirty water got in my eye and it hasn't been right since. I was like, well, when was this? He's like, oh, a couple years ago. Okay. So just doing the workup on him. I mean, a normal eye pressure is usually around 16. His was 40 to give you some perspective. So right away, I'm like, hmm, pretty sure you have glaucoma. But looking, just examining him, realizing how much vision he had lost in that eye already, that made me go ahead and say, all right, we need to do all these screening tests today and we need to see if we can get you in contact with an ophthalmologist to see if we can do surgical intervention to preserve the other eye and really make sure we're protecting both eyes, right? So in that case, it's really important to act immediately to listen to patients because he had been somewhere in the two years from when the dirty water got in there and they clearly did not look at his eye pressure or didn't check his nerves. They weren't assessing him fully. They probably just bypassed him and let him continue because your eye pressure does not typically just overnight become 40, yeah. um, you know? And so just educating him and educating um, my employees, educating his son to let them know why we're going to continue doing follow-up care, why we're doing a referral, what we need to check, um, to make sure that we are being really proactive with his eye health. And it's one of the reasons why educating people, whether it's doing um, talks or sitting on panels or anything like that, especially with the community, that's really big because people don't understand. You know, sometimes people don't want to go to the doctor because they're scared to hear a certain word. Like they hear glaucoma and they're, they're, they're nervous. They don't want to even go and hear anything about that. And I said, well, glaucoma is fine if we catch it early. We can, we can preserve your vision. It's, it's great. We can make that happen. But if you come in when there's a problem because you were too scared to come before, there's very little we can do when it's, it's, it's far gone. You know, um, we can't regenerate the nerve at this time. So once that optic nerve is, is dead, that's it. We've lost the vision and there's no way to get it back. But if we catch this early enough, we can keep your vision for 20 years as opposed to struggling to keep it for a year or two years. All right. I got a couple more questions. So speaking about eye health, um, number one, how often does someone come see an optometrist to get their vision checked? Only once a year. I'm nicer than the dentist. <laughs> I just want you once a year. <laughs> true indeed. True indeed. I think, I don't know when the last time I went to get my vision checked. <laughs> I keep going back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I was in, in Brooklyn, New York, I would definitely stop by just to get my vision checked one time. But um, I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> a matter of fact, I think I went like a year two, probably a few years back. I think I was uh -huh. in Walmart and saw like a vision center. It was just like, yeah, well, I got right. time to waste. Let me just go ahead and check it out. Yeah. Okay. We don't, we're going to make an eye appointment, though, in 2022, <laughs> though. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put that on my calendar. I got to do that. So yes, please. <laughs> and um, what are some things people can do, like, for eye health to keep right. their vision good? Like, what are some things they can eat, some exercises, something that you can kind of, like, uh, tell them to, that they can do now? Well, that's a great question because I think that, you know, what people don't realize is how much the body connects. So whatever is happening in, systemically is happening in the eye as well. Um, diabetes or diabetic retinopathy at this time is the number one cause of blindness for working aged adults in the U.S. 
And that directly ties to how we eat and how we take care of our bodies, right? You're seeing it, we're seeing it in uh, younger patients because of the rise of childhood obesity. And, you know, we take it for granted, especially these last couple of years dealing with the pandemic. You know, I think a lot of people have just kind of almost given up. Like, I'm just going to eat what I want because I'm sad. I'm stuck in the house. I can't travel. I can't do this. But are you eating too many processed foods? Are you eating too many fried foods? Are you deciding to be more sedentary and sit, sitting on the couch and binge watching stuff all the time? You have to. <laughs> You have to get up. You have to get moving. You got to move, make that blood flow in your body. It's really important, not just physically, but mentally. You need to make sure you're eating um, colorful fruits and veggies and um, taking care of your overall health because hypertension, diabetes that can cause hemorrhaging in the eyes that can cause you can have a stroke of the eyes. All the things that happen in your body happen in your eyes. And it's not just a warning sign for losing vision. It's a warning sign that you could probably lose your life because you're not being um, diligent in making sure that you are exercising and eating healthily. Nice, nice, nice. So basically, exercise, eat healthy, get off the couch, remove yourself from the Netflix and go outside for a little while. Just a little while. <laughs> I know it's cold right now, so that doesn't count. But you, I do virtual Pilates. You can do stuff inside the house. You know, everybody's team Peloton. I'm not on that team, but you can find something inside too. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I know some people will have a question about uh, screen time. So the amount of time they look at a computer or a laptop and how can that affect the eyes? Could you get into that a little bit? Absolutely. That's a big one. That's probably what I've been dealing with the most since the pandemic started. Everybody is doing, on average, at least eight hours of work on the screen, um, compounded with however many hours they're doing on their phone, <laughs> which is just outrageous. Um, and people are coming with a lot of common symptoms, which would be frontal lobe, temporal lobe headaches, eye fatigue, eye strain, double vision, and extreme cases, um, extreme light sensitivity or photophobia. Um, uh, and nausea, a lot of people even become nauseous from it. And what that has to do is really with how the eyes work together as a team. We're not really built to sit and converge our eyes and have all those muscles focused up close for so many hours. We're really built to diverge our eyes and look at the distance and do more um, hand-eye coordinated tasks, right? And at first when people came in, I thought, you know, they must be making this up. This doesn't make sense. Because I said, well, you're still doing the job you always did. But patients would explain to me, yeah, but, you know, at the office, I might be at my desk for a bit. And then I get up and I go talk to my coworker or we're in a staff meeting or I go do this. Or I go run an errand, come back. You know, they explain I'm here having meetings. I'm legitimately in front of the screen doing this all day. I don't move. And um, immediately it's just a big shift in prescriptions. It's really terrible for kids because their eyes are still developing. So you're seeing these huge shifts in um, kids' ability to accommodate or focus up close. You see this increase in prescriptions for the kids. And, you know, we're all just trying to kind of survive right now. So a lot of times to keep the child quiet, especially if everybody's at home, it's like, here, play your game, do this. So they now are doing virtual learning and then turn around and they're doing a gaming. And then turn around, they're on the phone and then turn around, taking some selfies. <laughs> All these things are happening 
Nobody is taking time to relax the eyes. So I tell everyone, basically what you're doing is forcing your eyes to be in a plank all day. And then you're mad when they're tired. You're mad when you can't see so well and your prescription is changing. We have to detach from our screens. It is going to have long lasting effects on our vision and overall health. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you mean. I try to put the phone down about an hour before I go to sleep, uh, read a book or something or just like just relax without looking at a screen TV and nothing, just kind of like cool out. So yeah. Exactly. Does it make a difference on how you sleep too? Oh yeah, yeah. I go to sleep like a little baby immediately. Yep. <laughs> yep. I couldn't figure out why I wasn't sleeping well. So I just felt out of, let me, let me scroll again. <laughs> so that maybe I'll get sleepy. And then I learned that that actually makes it worse. So you're supposed to detach at least 30 minutes before your bedtime and kind of allow your brain to unwind. I used to be known for keeping my TV on. My TV would be on even if I wasn't watching it. Mm -hmm. I would go to sleep to my TV. That was just what I did. And I had to learn that that was messing me up too as far as like my sleep pattern. So yeah, when we're exposed, when we hear about blue light, blue light regulates our circadian rhythm. So it regulates our ability to go to sleep and wake up. And we're overexposed to that area of the light spectrum right now. So that's why so many more people are complaining about insomnia or this disruption to their sleep pattern. So I love to hear that you have a good sleep hygiene because you are supposed to detach from the screen and allow your body it's time to kind of shut down. Yeah, yeah. It's a couple of things I do. So for years now, I, I don't even have a TV in my bedroom. Like the TV's in the living room. So if I want to watch TV, I got to get up. So that's what that is. And then if I wake up in the middle of the night and I feel like, man, I can't go back to sleep, I force, you know, some days I win, some days I lose. But I try to force myself not to get on the phone because I already know if you get on the phone, you will be on that phone for at least an hour at minimum in the middle of the night. Cause you'll be like, well, I'm really not sleepy. So I, let me just keep scrolling, keep scrolling. That is something. It's like a black hole. You start scrolling <laughs> and you look up, you're like, two hours. <laughs> what happened? Like, man, your alarm be going off. You're like, man, I, yes. I didn't even get no rest and I got to go to work. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. So force myself not to even get there. All right. So I've got a couple more questions. So I work retail in a retail pharmacy and I get a lot of patients coming in complaining either of um, allergies in their eyes or dry eyes. So um, what are some things that you could recommend um, to give the people out there listening some help if they either have allergies in their eyes, seasonal allergies or have dry eyes? Well, going back to what we kind of been talking about, you, we've definitely seen an increase in the dry eye situation because of the increased screen time. So we have a reduced blink rate while we are working on the computer. Nobody's blinking and our eyelids are our windshield wipers. So you're not you're not clearing over the eye surface. We just stared at the screen. I, the tear film is evaporating too quickly. So definitely a reason for lubricants. You want to stay away from those that are vasoconstrictors. Some great ones to consider would be Refresh, Sustain, Blink. Those are some great brands. I personally always love a preservative-free brand. Reason being is that you may be hypersensitive, meaning you have some uh, ocular allergies. You may want to use some of the uh, over-the-counter. Well, most of them are over-the-counter because even Pataday now is over-the-counter. So you can yeah. get your Pataday, you can get your Alloway, you can get your Zatador. 
all of those over the counter in any pharmacy retail, you're going to find it in that lovely aisle with all those drops. <laughs> and um, I, I even with my allergy eye drops, I still get preservative free just because it's gentler on the eyes. You have um, fewer chances of a reaction to it. You can use systemic meds for for allergies, but that doesn't always tackle those that are happening in the eyes. And a lot of times it's a compound situation. You might have dry eye, you wear contacts and then you over wearing the contacts and not cleaning them because some of you are nasty. And then you have ocular allergies. So you have all of these little bumps in your eyelids and then wondering why your eyes feel funny. Well, one, take out the contacts, give your eyes a break, clean them, throw them away when you're supposed to. Don't sleep in them like we tell you not to. Go ahead and make sure you're using the proper drops and you're just doing a proper hygiene routine for your eyes. Nice. People are nasty. I'm sorry. They are. <laughs> now, I understand. Like, I've, I've hung out with a few people, like, definitely on vacations. <clears throat> Where some people are like, hey man, I forgot the solution, or you know, mm-hmm. out partying, forget to take it out, and the next day is like, I don't know if it's stuck or what. I'm, I'm just so happy I don't have to deal with it. But they they having they be having situations with their contacts. Well, one can we back up because you haven't had an eye exam, so we don't know if you need to deal with it or not. We're gonna say for right now you don't need to for deal now. with it. For now. now, Yes, I'll go with that. But yes, that's one of my pet peeves. I'm like, just get a daily contact. If you can't be trusted to remember your solution to clean it, get a daily contact lens. You out drinking, take them out, throw them away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Easy. (laughs) All right. So you got your own practice now that you got in 2020. Uh, Where do you see yourself growing from here? Like, where's your career path going up from there? Well, what's interesting is things come back full circle. Um, Starting last year, well, actually starting during the pandemic. So when my office shut down, I created a tutoring group. And that was really to help some of my mentees initially because everybody was stressed out. So I had all these mentees through the National Optometric Association, just students I would always talk to from time to time. But when things shut down and their board exams got canceled and a couple of them had been already struggling with passing boards, then on top of that, the George Floyd um, murder happened and more students were calling me just crying and upset. And they said, this is too much as the pandemic boards are canceled. I'm so angry about what's happening in the country. And I just had all of these conversations where I said, you know what? Everyone just come on this Zoom call. Let's just talk this out. And so I created a group for those students. And we kind of had these review sessions to kind of help them figure out how to study, how to manage their mental health, how to put everything together in that way. And the group did really, really well. So it ended up taking off in a way (laughs) that I didn't plan on because I was just doing it to help them. It was like a little project to help them. Everybody was going through so much during that time. Um, We did that actually for over two months, just monitoring them. And then one after another, all of them started passing their exams and a lot of them had failed at least twice before, you know? So by creating that space, I said, okay, this is really special. And we, you know, we had more people join the group and then they started passing and it became really a huge deal, but my practice opened back up 
And some of the other doctors I got to help me, their offices opened back up. We couldn't continue it in the same way, but I think it kind of reignited that part of me that loves teaching and mm. loves mentoring. And because like I said, I grew up in that type of house. It just was natural for me to go over certain things and explain things in a different way and say, Hey, you know, I struggled with this. This is the problem I had in school. This was the problem I had with taking boards, but you know, are you looking at it from this way? And let's, you know, identify this issue. Let's talk about the fact that, you know, there's police brutality and how that affects you mentally when you are the minority student in your school and you are struggling with other things. Let's really discuss that because that doesn't get discussed normally. Right. So in doing that, it um, kind of created a passion within me to keep going in that direction. And I was offered a teaching position for like a summer program at my alma mater where I did the same thing and I've been offered that same position again. So I see that kind of shifting for me okay. <laughs> where I guess I'm teaching after all. <laughs> I guess I'm doing my own writing after all, you know. And so I think that's where I see things going in the future. I I've learned so much as a practice owner, but to be quite honest, I never wanted to own a practice. Having a business and being a business manager scared me. Uh, but right now, I mean, I'm the optometrist. I'm the business manager. I'm the janitor. I'm the customer service rep. I'm all the things right now. <laughs> so, um, I feel like whatever else is out there, it's going to happen because I've already pretty much done it. <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Being your uh, business owner, you take on all the hats. You become every part of the business from beginning to end, every little section. But that's really dope that you was able to create this online group of people, uh, learning course or whatever, to help them pass that exam. Because I know some people even get frustrated and after not passing once or twice, and they kind of just decide like, hey, maybe this just isn't for me even after all those years of being there and doing that schoolwork and you was able to help them be like, nah, this is for you. You just got to refocus because wherever you put your focus at it and your attention, you will achieve those things. So you kind of help them refocus and draw that attention back. So I appreciate that. Thank you for, for getting them to that next level. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a powerful thing because I think that's across disciplines. You like what you said, you see that in pharmacy, but I've talked to people in law school, med school, so many people who've gone through the coursework and then you get to this point and you can't complete, you know, your certification, you're not going to practice. And um I struggled with boards and for me, it was really changing my mindset and deciding to approach things differently. And I thought, wow, what if we all did something like that and we were able to kind of just talk about it, right? Because there's also that stigma of failure and we're afraid to say that this was hard or yeah. we only want to show what was fun and easy, what's cute, what's sexy, you know, with that <laughs> selfie, put it out there. I did this, look at me, ooh, ooh, ooh. Let me TikTok and show you what I did. Yeah. But forget that. <laughs> Let's talk about the real stuff affecting us. We all have so much going on. And I think in this season, especially when with an ongoing pandemic, that's probably the most important thing to me um, for all people to recognize. Everybody is going through something right now. Um, the, the weight of a pandemic, how that affects you, your job, your family, your passion, 
past issues that carry forward everything else in the world right now is so heavy and we have to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves but we're checking in with one another that you just being a little bit kinder and being a little bit more honest about where you are and where the world is right now i'm glad you mentioned that um about being in the right mental space and focusing and, and to move forward so how do you have a work-life balance to keep you grounded so that you can be able to keep delivering the best service to your patients and being kind to yourself to be able to keep yourself grounded? That's a great question. Um, I used to be really terrible at it, but I'm getting better. <laughs> this would be the worst. Um, probably at the height of everything, opening the practice, I was the type that if patients sent me an email or a message or a phone call, I had to call them right back right away. I had to message them right away. Plus, I'm seeing I'm doing seeing patients and doing my charting and I'm mopping these floors and cleaning this <laughs> toilet. <laughs> and then I'm listening to all my students who want to talk to me every day to talk about different things. And then I'm hosting tutoring sessions on weekends. Like, you know, I, I work every Saturday. I would come home and the rest of the evening, I would have a tutoring session. Sunday, I'd have a tutoring session. And all these things were happening. And I'm wondering why I'm just crying for no reason. <laughs> it's because I was tired. I was um, just worn out. I was overwhelmed. And for me, it came to a point where my best friend was like, hey, girl, um, I, I emailed you a list of therapists. And I think you need to talk to someone. And I was so offended. I was like, I I'm fine. <laughs> She's like, no, you're crying again. Nothing, you're not fine. So I think by listening to someone who loved me enough to say, hey, you need to take care of yourself, getting a therapist who's like, you can't do this for everyone and learning to set better boundaries for my life and say no, um, which was, and it's still very hard for me. So that's learning to say to students, hey, like, I love you all very much but I can only service you in this space. I can't be on the phone with all of you every day. I can't do this with you every day. We have to figure out how we can still help you, but not be overwhelmed ourselves. And that was myself and you know other doctors who were volunteering their time to tutor them, right? I had to learn to do that. I had to learn to set better boundaries with patients and know that, okay, I spend a good amount of time with my patients if, and I write notes for them. So I'm like, why? Why are we going over this again? <laughs> like, I explained this to you and I wrote out notes for you. So I need you to keep the notes. Don't tell me you lost notes two seconds after I gave it to you because you're not respecting my time, right? So in that case, like just like you didn't respect the time for me, I'm going to need you to respect it now and wait for me to answer you when I have time to answer you. And that's setting that boundary. And sometimes that's even with family, right? Because much as we love them, you know, family can be a lot, <laughs> a whole lot. So that's even saying to family sometimes like, I, yeah, I love you. I just can't do this with you right now. And let me talk to you when I have a little space. So that and what I talked to you about before, learning better sleep hygiene, learning like, OK, I can't leave the TV on and be on my phone before bed and making sure that I make it to my exercise classes and make sure I'm going for walks and meet with my therapist faithfully <laughs> <laughs> and do all of the things I need to do to keep myself together. Nice. Yeah. You gotta have that work-life balance. I feel like what you're saying at the end, you're getting there, doing it really good. Setting boundaries is like definitely the number one thing. Like I've had a therapist on 
And she's like, that's the, the key thing to that work-life balance is, hey, when I'm at work, these are the hours, this is what I can do for you, this is how I can be able to help you understand that. And then when I'm off, that's off. my time. <laughs> off. Like off, off. <laughs> like if you have a problem, go to the ER. Nothing. Do not call me. Yes. <laughs> I definitely understand that. Yeah. <laughs> Man. So if anybody want to get in contact with you, anybody want to know more about you, uh, know more about you, know where your business is. So can you drop your Instagram so that they can find out a little more about you? And then also, can you tell them where your business is and what your business is so that they can come through and get the eye check once a year? <laughs> once a year, just once. Uh, yes, my IG handle is Dr. Camille F. Cohen Optometry. So D-R-C-A-M-I-L-L-E-F-C-O-H-E-N Optometry, O-P-T-O-M-E-T-R-Y. You almost messed me up there. <laughs> and uh, my office, it's a ProVision franchise office. It's located 95 7th Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, it's called 11215. The phone number is 718-230-0205. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Cohen, for coming on Pivot Talk Podcast, giving us so much insightful information. Appreciate you taking the time out. Uh, this is another episode. Thank you, Dr. Bertso. I appreciate you having me. All right.